0: Well, you come on back, Come on back and uh, grab your Bibles. and when you grab your Bible, uh, open up, would you please to uh, chapter seven of the book of First Corinthians, Chapter seven of the book of First Corinthians. But wait a minute here now. Somebody didn't tell me it was their birthday today, so we have to sing again. Facebook is bad for a lot of things, but it doesn't fail on the birthdays. So Savannah's birthday is today. And, you know, there's nothing like having a guest come to the church and then embarrassing them, right? (laughs) So let's sing to Savannah, okay? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear Savannah, happy birthday to you. All right. Well, okay, we're at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What an easy thing to preach and teach with real sensitivity, with no sleep, and a men's retreat for all weekend. That's just perfect timing. Thank you. No, it is perfect timing. So, Well, let me tell you a little bit about the church at Corinth. It's in Greece, but remember, it's dominated by the Romans. The Romans are around there, and they have them under their control. The Romans dominated the whole of That ancient world back then. And there was in southern Greece a little church on an isthmus, a little landmass that separated um, a cape, or, 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 you know, one cape, or one sea was on one side, one sea was on the other, and there was a way to go underneath uh, Greece and go over to Italy, and it was really dangerous, and so this four-mile little stretch of land, they built these rollers so that the ships could go across so they wouldn't have to go underneath and be in real dangerous waters, and so it was a seaport with lots of commerce, and lots of fashion, and lots of cosmopolitan, worldly stuff. And, of course, the Grecians served lots of gods, and um, one of the gods they served was the goddess of love, and there was, right above this landmass, up on the hill, there was a temple, a temple that served that love goddess, or was devoted to the love goddess, and at night, prostitutes would come out of the temple and ply their trade, in the city, and it was a form of worship. It was a rough place. It was a filthy place. It was an evil place. It was a sinful place. It sounds like our American cities. And against this backdrop, here Paul is called to establish a church, and he does. He stays there for many years, and now he's not there, but he's writing this letter In response to several sins that are taking place there. And as we'll see here today, right here in the first couple uh, lines, he's responding to an actual letter that the church, Corinth, or the Corinthians, wrote back to Paul and said, We need help. And here's some of the things that they were asking. If you don't know that, Paul is always writing these letters, not some sort of systematic theology like point by point, by point, by point. Here's what who God... got. He, he actually writes in response to real issues. And here are some of the issues. Pray for me. Is celibacy or staying unmarried more spiritual than marriage? How about some advice, Paul, to those of us in our church who thinks Christians shouldn't marry at all because it's higher or holy or more pious? What about this? How about uh, advice, give us some advice to those who say that even those who are married should abstain from sexual relations with their spouse. What do you say about that, Paul? Paul. How about, we need some advice, Paul, for us who are single or who are widows. What do, you, what do you say about that? What about our desires, our legitimate desires? I mean, in this chapter, we're going to talk about our sexual desires, but, you know, there's other desires that we have. I mean, every day, I, much to the chagrin of my wife, I get hungry. And we have this running joke, although it's turning into really a poor joke on my behalf. That I, early in the day, ask, what's for dinner? And she don't like that very much. Because I get hungry, but she gets hungry, right? She has a legitimate desire. We have legitimate desires to be hungry. But also, don't you about, I don't know, now that I'm 54, it happens around 9.15 in the evening... It used to happen around 12.15 or one fifteen. I get to that point where I can't keep my eyelids open. I have a desire to sleep. So do you, right? So we have some legitimate desires, but here's what happens is we take those desires and put them outside the bounds of what God has asked us to do with those desires. He recognizes those desires. We have, many of us have a desire to have sex, And he has a place for that. But if you go outside the bounds of what God places around that relationship, it goes wild and it is toxic. Well, eating—I can't eat all the ice cream like I used to want to do all the time. I've noticed that that just don't work when I get this old. I mean, so. There's this place where there's a legitimate desire for food. And God says, here, here's an apple. Here's, 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 you know, uh, vegetables. And, And my desire goes outside of that bound and it can lead to some bad things, right? I mean, folks, this is often what we do in the church. We eat hamburgers and cheeseburgers and fries and fried foods for 60 years. And then we pray, oh Lord, why are you punishing me with a heart attack? Come on now. You have a legitimate desire that's gone outside the mouth. You could be one who wants to, and I'm not talking about in terms of depression or something, but we can be people who like to stay in bed too long. (laughs) It's a legitimate desire, but we can become lazy, right? There's a place for sleep. There's a place for food. There's a place for sex. But God is saying as our good, good father that this, I want to build a fortress around these things, or I want to show you how to responsibly steward these things so, so that you'll thrive in this life. And the weird thing is we get mad at God when we do the things he's asked us not to do. <laughs> so he's giving us these advices, and he keeps on through this whole chapter. He's going to Talk about what happens when one person inside the marriage becomes a believer in Jesus Christ and one person doesn't. So you have a believer in Jesus Christ and another who's not. The Bible in another place tells us or shows us who it is that we are as born again, spirit-filled Christians, who it is we should be looking for to marry. And he says, don't deviate from that. What else does he do? He gives us instruction to live our Christian life. Do you remember we were just saying uh, free indeed? Don't you love to be free? Americans love to be free. But I fear that in the Christian life, we don't really know what true freedom is. True freedom is not freedom to sin, Warren Wearsby says. It's a freedom not to sin. That's the Christian. And then He's going to talk about being completely and utterly free, even if you're a slave. So, the Bible's not for slavery. Of course that's not. He's just commenting on what happens during this time. Because in the Roman world, folks, lots of people were slaves. Millions and millions of people, including doctors and lawyers and teachers you understand. And so he dresses that. He says, you really want to be free? It's not what you do or your circumstance. It's who's inside of you. That's when you're free. So he's not commenting about whether slavery is good or bad. You'll see that here in a minute. He's just commenting the facts of what's happening in the culture at the time. He's going to uh, give more advice later on in the chapter to people who are unmarried. Can't you wait? And that one of the things of marriage is it often can get people off track from serving the Lord. He's going to talk about that, and they want advice about that. And so, we're going to take a look at it here in chapter 6, excuse me, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. What has he already addressed? He's already addressed division in the church. Remember that? Some people like this pastor, other people like that pastor. They would only come when this pastor was teaching, you know, or whatever. And uh, uh, that was a problem, and so Paul addressed it. There was actually a a stepson who had taken up relations and lived with his stepmother here in the Corinthian church. And that was shocking, and Paul was going to talk about it. But Paul was really shocked that the body of believers just let it go and didn't do anything about it. And so he gives us some rules about and things to do and how to handle church discipline. And he talks to us about how immorality defiles the church and that there's not to be sin in the camp. And then last week we talked about this, something very near and dear to my lawyerly heart how we're not to bring our disagreements into the world. Don't sue the brethren. So that's where we start today. We read this in verse 1 of chapter 7. It says this, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. I love it. He was addressing real-world problems, the same problems that people come and ask us. Marriage, relationships, divorce. What what do we think about all of these things? And here comes the letter, and now here comes Paul's response. I want to tell you this before you read this. This isn't where you derive your theology, your total theology, right here, of everything about love and marriage, or divorce, or singleness, you don't derive it from right here totally. You just get a little bit of it. You have to go to other places. In fact, Jesus talked about marriage, didn't he, did he not, at the Sermon on the Mount. On the Sermon on the Mount. And we know right from the get-go in the Bible, we know right from the get-go that the man and the woman, did you notice what I said? The man and the woman... Exclusively are for one another. We'll read about it here tonight. There is some polygamy in the Bible, but the perfect will of God for our marriages is that it's exclusive between a man and a woman. And what are we to do? We're to leave our father and mother. I have a whole sermon about that. You're to leave your father and mother, not that you don't continue to honor them, not that you don't continue to visit them, not that you don't continue to help them, not that you continue to go over and have Sunday dinner. No one's saying that, but you don't live out your marriage with your mom and dad, folks. The gospel, you learn to live the gospel between you and her or her and you, man and wife, wife and man, and you leave and you cleave to your spouse, that's God's design for marriage, and you become one, that's this, you're becoming one all physically, yes, you're becoming one physically, you're becoming one spiritually and emotionally, and that's what marriage is about, and it's a lifelong learning process, isn't it? Paul calls it in Ephesians 5, he uses this really dramatic Greek word, Mysterion. It's mysterious, and yet it's a picture of Jesus Christ and his bride, us. And so, one of the great purposes, among other things, what are some other things? We're going to learn about one of them today. One of the things that you're going to learn about today, you're going to read it, and you're going to (gasps) be shocked a little bit. You're going to say, is that the purpose of marriage? And I would say, no, it's one of the purposes of marriage. But the great purpose of marriage is that you're shouting with your marriage the gospel, look at this, to all the world. You're the great mystery, the mysterion, that's what it is. Well, concerning the things of which you wrote to me, here it comes. Somebody must have asked in this letter, what do you think that, do you think that Christians should or shouldn't marriage? Do you think that Christians should remain celibate and unmarried? Is that more spiritual? than marriage. And Paul says this, watch this, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now that word touch means sexual relations. And so what he's doing is he's answering something that they've asked him. Because you see, in Greece, there's this great debate. They were the great debaters. They would go out into the public squares. They would trade ideas back and forth. And one of the great debates is sort of that old Gnosticism debate. Is the body evil? Are material things all evil? Because if the body doesn't count, there's a philosophy that they would espouse that you could go out and do anything you wanted with it. No matter who you were attached to or who you were married to or anything, you could do what you wanted with it. There's a flip side to that argument, and that's this. If you wanted to be pious and good and spiritual, no, you wouldn't do anything you wanted with your body. You would beat your body into submission, and you would train your body. And you would take those, listen to this, evil desires and you would bring them under control. So this debate is raging right here amongst the church. It's now crept into the church, and watch this. They ask Paul the question, and he responds back, well, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. It's fine. Celibacy is fine if you've been called to that gift. It's just not better... (laughs) than the sexual marital union. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because they would debate this. I'm more holy than you. I can go without having a wife. What do you mean you're more holy than me? Well, the body is evil and look what you're participating in even if it was with the wife. And then you have this other camp saying, what are you talking about? God's given us this legitimate desire. And the first thing Paul says here is, watch it. He just says, hey, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. If you've been called to a life of singleness and celibacy and God's given you that gift, that's fantastic. Great. Praise the Lord, Paul says. Nevertheless, Paul is real. He recognizes that people have legitimate God-given desires. I just spelled out three biggies. The desire for food, the desire for sleep, and the desire for sex. They're all legitimate desires that you've been given, maybe. Maybe you've been called to the gift of celibacy. If that's true, Paul says, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Do you see how exclusive it is, folks? It's to you, that's just, you're, you're like, yeah, no big deal. But in this culture, it was a big deal. Because they were going around and worshiping the God of love, whether they were married or not, you see. And here, Paul says, wait a minute. Now that you're a Christian, there is this thing. And this thing is that, from other places we know, you're to leave your father and mother, one man, one woman, and you're supposed to cleave to one another so that two become one, and you do that. And, and here he says, nevertheless, if you're not called to celibacy, maybe then on the flip side, you're called to romance and, and, and love with uh, someone of the opposite sex. Well, it's to be, first of all, exclusive. Second of all, between man and woman, and the Bible says here that let, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. It's simply talking about sexual relations. That is a legitimate desire that should be practiced within the marriage. Somehow, in the church, we've gotten to the place where we're embarrassed by these things. And I say, if we don't talk about what the Scriptures teach and what God thinks about marriage, who will talk about it? Well, I know where I learned it. (laughs) I learned it in a locker room. Right? You learn it at school from kids who don't know. Or you learn it out on the streets, or you learn it in magazines or something, or movies. And here God says, well, wait a minute. There is this legitimate thing that somebody may have been called to celibacy and remain single. Perfect. Wonderful. He'll tell us later on. That makes you lighter in the sense that you don't have all the weights for service to the Lord. Okay, so great. But maybe you're not been called to that nevertheless. One of the purposes of marriage, and some people say, well, I read this and it takes such a low view of marriage. Well, you can't just read this in a vacuum. Sexual immorality was parading down the streets, folks. Everywhere the people turned, it was available. And here here he says, let each man have his own wife, each woman his own husband, because of sexual immorality. You'll be tempted. Until so you say, well, God doesn't think of man and woman as animals. Yeah, he doesn't. But he recognizes, and that's the point, what I want you to see, that the sexual desire, if God's given that to you, is legitimate. And it's okay inside the marriage. Somehow in years past, we've sort of thought of it as something that's dirty or bad, and which, and it's not. Here's God saying it's legitimate for those who have been called to it. How about this, though? It's a mutuality. You know, uh, I think of this verse. <laughs> well, I'll keep going. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. And that's a real interesting word, affection. It's like taking a piece of yourself, in the Greek, and giving it to your wife. It's like taking a piece of yourself, the man, or, excuse me, the wife and giving it to your husband. This thing that you're uh, loving and kind to each other, affection. I wonder how many counselors <laughs> fill up their sheets weekly with people who are stone cold and unaffectionate. Is it unaffectionate or is it whatever? You know what I'm talking about. No affection. Because the Lord spells it out. As part of the marriage union, the husband's going to render his wife not only just sex, but affection. And the wife is going to not only just rendered to her husband sex, but also affection. And then, here's something that maybe you think you chafe over, but I don't think you will if you think about it. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body. Oh my goodness, is the Bible bad? No, because it says, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So here's what he's doing here. In this particular part of the scriptures, there's other places where he also talks about marriage. Paul, Ephesians 5, Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. He also talks about in Matthew 19's divorce. In this part of the scripture, he's saying there's this mutuality of giving. In fact, I wonder if you've ever thought about this verse within the marriage this way. Those who want to have life, lay down their life. And those who don't want to have life, you know, think of themselves all the time. And I'm paraphrasing, but here's why. Because this verse and these verses, I think, is telling us that within the marriage, this legitimate desire that God has given and ordains within the marriage is not forgetting, not forgetting, not forgetting, I mean, it's not forgetting It's forgiving. Not forgiving. (laughs) It's this thing where the the husband is thinking about his wife physically and her pleasure and thought of what's going to happen in the marital bedroom that the Bible says don't defile. And the wife is thinking back towards the husband of how she can please the husband. The husband thinking about how he can please the wife. And in the process of that... You're going to, you know, maybe think I'm giving you too, too much information, but in the process of that, it's amazing. Your needs are met. But your emphasis is not on you as you start out. It's on her, and her emphasis is on you. And that's the height of giving and loving and beauty. And Paul says it right here. You say, man, stop, please, stop. Stop. But no, don't stop. I think the way in which we talk about sex is a barometer of how the Lord's taught us about it. I think if we're embarrassed about it, something's askew there. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. You're welcome to talk to your Children about it at age appropriate levels as they get older about those sorts of things and to have a healthy view of what sex is. It's this beautiful thing between a husband and a wife, two people giving and seeking the pleasure of somebody else. That's what sex is. That's what sex is inside the marriage. She doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Don't freak out at that because the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And these verses, watch this. They're telling you, don't be manipulative with sex. Don't penalize people with sex. This is something that two are becoming one, and this is something that regularly happens within the marriage. Don't penalize. Don't use it as a weapon. Don't use it as to get back to people. You don't own your own body. She does, and she doesn't own her own body. You do, and you're united. Isn't that beautiful? And likewise, or excuse me, and do not, verse 5, deprive one another, what? Of sex, except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan doesn't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Don't deprive one another. See, there's no manipulation in this thing. There's no getting back at somebody. We're not depriving one another. We're pouring out to each other on a regular basis because we're saying to one another again and again in our marriages, I choose you. You you know what part of love is? Man, I don't like this. Maybe Jan likes it, but I don't like this. Maybe it's my pride. Oh, I think it might be. It's taking your heart and saying, here, and trusting them. And they're not perfect. And you're not perfect, but that's what it is. In other words, you're vulnerable. And what is sex? Could there be anything more vulnerable than that? And there's one person and one person only that that happens with. Real love. Well, don't deprive one another, except with consent for a time. Is there any rules in, within your marriage in which you would withhold uh, sexual relations? Now, by the way, just time out. No one's saying you lord it over people, and you got to, you know, have. You, know, you, you can have a headache, and sometimes you're tired. Of course, you're tired, and yes, those are all legitimate and okay. But this is just saying, in a regular basis, in a pattern, these things are what keep the marriage alive. The Lord certainly does, but he's saying, listen, the body's not evil. This is something I've gifted to you. Participate and be fruitful. So what is one of the uh, uh, purposes of marriage? Well, here's one of them, but it's not all of them. It's to keep you from sexual immorality. But don't read this chapter in a vacuum. They were... Facing sexual immorality as they walk down the street. This is just one part. What are some other parts? It's the great mystery. It's reflecting Christ to the world. The gospel to the world. Here's some other uh, 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 bases or purposes of marriage. Is to make godly children. You can look that up in Malachi. Is to make not just children. Godly children. What are some other purposes? You ever thought why in the world did God take Eve from here, like, why didn't he take him from the foot, if this is the way you think, or the thumb, like the foot of the man over the woman? That's not how God sees men and women. He takes them from the side. We're side by side. We're rowing in the same direction in life. We're working together for the causes of the Lord. We're loving one another, and there's bumps in the roads, and things happen, but, but you live it out. The gospel isn't about perfection. It's about choosing over and over that person and loving and saying you're sorry and moving forward. God took them from the side. Why am I saying that? Because I think one of the pers- purposes of marriage here is to be a partner in life. He took them from right here, not there, not the thumb. No, that's not the way it is. So you've got some purposes. You see here Paul giving the admonition to not withhold relations from each other because it's important and it's not evil, and that's the point I want you to understand within the marriage. Don't deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan doesn't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. If you're married in here, I want you to know something. Satan has a big target on your marriage. Why? Because it's the ultimate thing that we do that shows Christ to the world. And if he can wreck that... Oh boy, he feels like he's winning. And so your marriage is going to be a real target. So is there an appropriate time to come together in prayer and fasting? Of course, please do it. But don't withhold over a long period of time. That's what the Bible says. I say this as a concession, not a commandment, for I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. You know, if you read this chapter, you see that Paul must be single. He's calling for people to be single like he was, but most people believe that Paul was married before. Why? Because Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin when he was in his early life and in order to be a member of the Sanhedrin you had to be married so two things could have happened right she could have died or how about this one she left can you imagine having all the honor and prestige and power and riches of Paul and Paul says honey I'm going to Damascus and he starts walking up the road, and the Lord appears to him. And Paul gives up everything. I'm not criticizing the wife, but gives up everything. Something happened. Either she died or she left him. Because when he gets here, he's obviously single. I wish that all men were even as myself. We're going to find out why he wishes that. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner, another than that. And here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to see. Singles, you're not lesser in God's eyes. If you're single right now, that's a gift from God. Maybe God's going to bring you a husband or a wife, and that will change. But right now, Paul's saying there's not one that's holier than the other. I think sometimes in the church the singles feel like they're lesser than because they're not married. That's not what Paul's saying. You have your own gifts. We have our own gifts. Examine yourselves. There's not a rule. Maybe God's given you that gift, but maybe He's given somebody else. There is no hierarchy. Here he goes now in verse eight, and he is going to give advice to unmarrieds and widows. Now I, now to the or excuse me, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain, even as I am. See, he keeps saying that. This is a great life, he says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, if they have those desires, let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn it with passion. It's sort of like he's carrying on What what he was talking about up in the first verse, he's talking about these principles to single believers and to the widows If they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it's better for them to uh, to marry than to burden with passion. Now to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. The, or the, Jesus talks about this, doesn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, except for one reason. Why is that reason? And the reason that you would, if you want to say it this way, have, uh, be available to step out of your marriage is because of, marital unfaithfulness or adultery or fornication. Now, I recognize there might even be people in here who have divorced or something uh, for a different reason. And the Lord has forgiven you if you've asked for, you know, uh, come to the Lord and talk to him about it. And there's grace and mercy. But what God is talking about right here is the highest and the greatest the best road, the highest road. You ever read that little, convicting little book in the Old Testament called Hosea? (laughs) Boy, is that a convicting book. Hosea is asked to marry a gal who is a prostitute, and God asks him to do it, which you're like, what? it's a picture of what Israel was like with the Lord himself. And Even as she continues to go back and to do things that are not godly, God asks Hosea to stay and work it out. And so there is this place in which, because of marital unfaithfulness, but if there are chances to reconcile, God's saying, try that. This is how important marriage is. But again, we recognize that that hasn't happened For everybody. What he goes on, but to the rest, I, verse 12, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe and is she willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Why would this be in here? Because here's why they were living in Corinth and they started this little fellowship. And what was happened. Uh, happening was people were getting saved, either a husband or wife, but the other spouse wasn't. So you had an unbeliever and a believer living in the same house. And they were writing to Paul and saying this, should we divorce them and leave? They're not a believer. In fact, there's a historian called Tertullian. He wrote a book about this or wrote a chapter about this. He was talking about how the Christian ladies sometimes were leaving the house at night Think about this: If you were a pagan, and were going around to the poor, poor houses and giving food to the poor, including men's houses, and do you know how he comments on this? The early church greeted one another. How did they greet one another? With a holy what? Kiss. Can you imagine, you know, this new thing happening here in Corinth and you're seeing your wife walk around at night to different guys' houses, not that she was doing anything wrong, and giving holy kiss to the brethren? He writes about that in one of his uh, non-extra-biblical sources. And it was causing havoc within the homes. And so they started writing these letters like, what do we do if somebody comes to know the Lord? He says what? What? What does he say? He just says real plainly, if any brother has a wife who doesn't believe and she's willing to live with him, don't divorce her. The marriage bond is not to be broken, if at all possible. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. The marriage bond is not to be broken, if at all possible. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Now don't get all confused. You read the whole Bible. You must read the whole Bible. The Bible calls us each to individual responsibility when we're presented with the gospel. This doesn't mean that if Jan was married to me and I was a pagan and she was a believer... That just because she lived in the same household, I became—I was saved and was going to go to heaven. Don't believe that stuff. That's not what this is talking about. What this is talking about is that Jan, in this case, would ex- still exert spiritual uh, influence over me through the Lord and our children. Do you get that? You're going to have a presence there. There's going to be a base there. There's going to be a teaching, even though there's some tension in that area in the home. There's going to be a teaching. There's going to be a foundation that she's going to set through the Lord to me. And so Paul says, do you see how important it is to get people to heaven? Here in this chapter... He's talking about, well, if she, he's not a believer, don't leave. You still have an influence there. And you're still going to have an influence on your children. It's important. When I read this, I get it. I do think about the things that it says to us as married or divorced or single. I do think about those things. But the one thing that comes screaming out of this chapter, if you'll look, is that there's something greater and higher going on than just our normal mundane lives. And that's that God wants people to join him in heaven for eternity. That's what I see. There's this, he's not desperate, but there's this pouring out of all of his resources, his only son, so that families and kids and people will be with him in eternity. And so he calls us sometimes to be in hard and difficult places. Now, time out. We're not talking about abuse. You, you get that, right? This is not abuse. You take abuse and you put it over there. If you're being abused, get away. Get safe. That's not this. We're talking about just a normal Man and wife, one's a believer, one's not. One wants to go to church, one doesn't want to go to church. One wants to go and take the kids to youth group, one doesn't care at all. That's what we're talking about. And here he says, stay. You have a great influence. I will use you, he says, for my glory in bringing these dear people to Christ. See, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such case. There may be some cases in which that's happened in Corinth or even here where the person has just left the marriage. In that case, Paul says, you've done nothing. You've called to keep the peace, and as much as it was up to you, you did keep the peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife. This is in the realm of marriage. But here now, we're going to shift gears. Who here, don't raise your hand, has ever had a job that you hated? Oh, I'll raise my hand. Watch this. This is why I know it's about something more than just marriage or something more than just occupation or something more than just your current circumstances. Watch. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. In other words, Paul understands that you're all called to different things. Maybe God's calling you to not be married, and God's calling me to be married, and God's given me the gift of unorganization. No, I'm kidding. He has given me that gift. But maybe he's given me the gift to be a teacher, and maybe he's given you the gift to be an administrator, and maybe you have the gift of counseling, and maybe you have the gift of being a hard worker and coming in here and helping us work and get people to hear the gospel. Or maybe he's given you the gift of a guitar or something. Everybody has a different gift. Nobody's more pious or holy than the other because one's the pastor and one's not. No, we all have different gifts. He's distributed them to each of us, as the Lord called, and and what the Lord says is, don't be disobedient. If he's given you the gift of administrate, administration, use your gifts of administration for God's glory. If you're an amazing artist, use your gifts of art to for God's glory. If you're a music person, do it for God's glory, however God's calling you. And what Paul is saying here is, I think, walk in that. It's okay if you have different gifts. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Well, this is funny, man. The Bible's funny. Was anyone called while circumcised? Was a Jewish person called? That's what it's saying. Well, let him not become uncircumcised. How could you be uncircumcised? That's funny to me. Well, okay. Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised a Gentile? Well, let him not be circumcised. If you have a Jewish background and you've come to know the Lord, it's okay to practice your Jewish background. Just don't push it on somebody else. If you've come uh, to the Lord under your Gentile background, it's saying right here, that's great. You don't have to change your, your culture and your lifestyle. Just don't push it on somebody else. Just come to the Lord as you are. I'll use you, the Lord says. Your gifts in that area, your gifts in that area. And we'll all pull in the same direction and we'll get people, the Lord says, into heaven for eternity. That's freeing, man. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Well, don't be concerned about it, but if you can be made free, rather use it. Now listen, again, the Bible's not commenting on whether slavery is bad or not. It is bad. (laughs) Nobody wants slavery. What he's saying is, do you really want to be free? Then stop worrying about whether the grass is greener over there. I need to have that job or I'm never going to be happy. I hate this boss. If you don't get me out of here, Lord, I'll never make it. For he, verse 22, who is called on the Lord while a slave, is the Lord's freedman. You see, for the born-again, spirit-filled Christian, it don't matter where you are. One of our friends, Roger Ziegler has a dad named Roger Ziegler. Isn't that funny? I one time told him happy birthday, and he's like, bro, it's not my birthday. See, Facebook got me. He put up a picture the other day. He preaches in the California state prisons. And he put up a picture. I think it was in the Donovan State Prison in California. Maybe it's Arizona. I don't know. Don't quote me of a picture of worship when they were in there. And these people, who were the freest looking people I ever seen. And they weren't getting out because the prison he ministers at is a life sentence, death sentence prison. Oh, but they were free. See, what he's talking about here is this internal freedom Your circumstances, maybe you are called and you've been put in a place where it's not a very good job or you don't really like your boss and he comes down on you. Well, if you don't go there, who will? Yes, put your resume out if you want to do it and pray about it and maybe the Lord moves you on. Sure, but while you're there, you glorify the Lord. Maybe no one will ever talk to that boss about Jesus, but you. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. We are slaves to sin without Jesus, but we become free in Jesus. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. (laughs) You see, we're all bought with a price. Our lives as Christians belongs to the Lord. So you can run around and tell everybody what you're going to do and your agenda. That, I guess, is okay. Not really. But the Lord is the one that bought you with a price. Your life is not our own. And listen, that's the freest place you've ever been. Amen. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state In which he was called. You don't have to change your circumstances because the real problem for you is inside your heart and not because of a job or a circumstance. That's what the Lord's saying. Now, concerning virgins. Most people believe this is talking about unmarried young ladies. I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress. No one knows exactly what the present distress is. Some people believe it's Roman oppression. Some people believe it's just the culture in which these Young ladies were living, and it's so distressful. Some people, because he refers to it, means that the time is running short and Jesus is coming back, and that's the distress. But it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be loosed from her. Remember the questions that coming from the Corinthian church, should I break up with her? or him. Are you loose from a wife? Don't seek a wife, but even if you do marry, you have not sinned. Of course not. And if a virgin marries, she hasn't sinned. He's answering the question, are they more pious or less pious? He's saying they haven't sinned if they married. It's up to each individual calling. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh. But I would spare you. See Paul puts his own opinion in there. He's like, "Wow, I'm serving the Lord and the God's given me this gift now, and it's just lighter traveling." Folks, It's just so true. Right? When you get married, what starts to happen? There's this thing called a mortgage. And people have to pay it off. Can you believe this thing? And you pay it off, and you worry about the... And things happen, and then the kids, you know, fall down. And then, you know, woe of all woes, your kids doesn't make prom king or prom queen. And it's just a big catastrophe in the house. And you you start getting embroiled in things that are lower... Not necessarily bad, but just lower than what God is asking us to do is to serve him. But you can do it successfully as married. But see, these are the things that you talk about before you get married. Are we going to row in the same direction? Do you want to be a missionary? Where can we serve? What can we do? Can we do a home fellowship? And all of those things take partnership and talking and praying. So you can do it successfully. But what Paul is saying is it's a little bit more difficult because I don't have to put lids back on things. I don't have to put up the toilet seat. No one cares, Paul says. I can just go where I want. I can go over across the ocean. No one cares. I don't even have to say bye. Nothing. I just go. But here, if I go across the ocean and I'm doing, I got to take care of things here. It's more preparation. That's all Paul's saying. He's not saying it's bad. It's just different and heavier. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. See that? He's living in the light that Jesus is coming back for us. So that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though as they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. He's just saying to you and to I, do you recognize when you get wrapped up in all that silliness, none of it matters? The only thing that are going to matter in heaven are the things like love, joy, peace, and righteousness and kindness. Those are the things that matter. Forgiveness and sharing the gospel and bringing people to Jesus. And so whatever happens, whether you're single or married, is that the trajectory of your life? What a perspective. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord. Now... How he may please the Lord, but he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit, but she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is prosper, uh, proper, sorry, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Here's what I want you to remember from today. Wherever the Lord's called you, married, unmarried. How about this? You've made mistakes in your sexual life and now you've repented and you're coming back to the Lord. Or maybe you're starting out in a new marriage. By the way, the Bible says if you're going to get married, marry somebody who's a believer. Maybe All of these things are happening. Uh, What he's saying here is, whatever God's called you to, watch this. Serve the Lord without distraction. You can still pay the bills, run to the PTA meetings, take kids to soccer, and still be serving the Lord. But it takes prayer and planning and two people who are on the same page, if you're married. You got it? All right. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth and that it must be, let him do what he wishes. This is fascinating. He puts this in there. He does not sin. Let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity but his power over his own will, and is determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. And there's a whole debate about what this is about. But here, this is clear, and I wish the young people were here. And the parents are going to say, amen. Don't go around dating people, young people, and hiding it from mom and dad. No, in fact... Find the blessing from mom and dad. Talk with mom and dad about who it is and have this interaction back and forth. Here, there must have been something where the father was real instrumental and he gives her in marriage. And if that happens with the blessing, the marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. In other words, Paul's showing his Slant towards singleness. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is now at liberty to be married to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord. Hey, widows, same thing. Marry in the Lord, but she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment. And I think I also have the spirit of God. You're like, wow, what just happened in here? You say, man, you know, I came for the body life sermon. (laughs) Do you know how many lives (laughs) get so off track and wrecked because of these issues? So much so that they're so distracted from serving the Lord, basically their lives have come to a screeching halt in serving the Lord because they're dealing from the trauma and the wreckage, which is real. I'm not saying it's not. And the Lord is saying, if you want a healthy relational life that glorifies me, you'll do the things that I've written in your word. Where people get way off track is when they let a desire run wild. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do. We, this is a hard word and uh, makes us uncomfortable sometimes. And yet, Lord, you've given us these pleasures and gifts to show your glory to the whole world. Lord, may you help us have an attitude for eternity, setting our minds on things above, even in our marriages, even in our workspaces, even in our extracurricular events. Lord, wherever you take us, may you fill us as ambassadors for Christ to teach a hurting and dark world and to love a hurting and dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.